So last week, our uh, we do have a seat here, and hands up again if you got a seat there. One here, one here. Anybody else got a seat open? A couple up here. Good ones up here. <laughs> For a couple. That's right. They are very nice seats. Yeah, very nice seats. Comfortable. <laughs> uh, so last week, we, uh, we discussed this notion of um, thinking about justice and the practice of justice and the pursuit of justice, speaking on behalf of justice, as not merely uh, a hobby of some Christians, but as part and parcel of what it means to be Christians. <coughs> so we have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. As we said, you can just as well translate, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its justice. That, that central to the gospel is the proclamation of the justice of God. And it's a justice that is uh, in many ways different from the justice of many sorts of empires or kingdoms or social powers. But it is a justice, especially biblically, justice is not about retaliation and justice is not about vengeance. Uh, though in some cases, and especially in the Old Testament, we see that the justice may on occasion entail some sort of punishment or discipline. But that justice is primarily this notion of the wholeness of a community, of the rightful attention of the community, especially to the weaker members of the community. So we talked about, for example, how um, when the prophets will talk about justice or the law will talk about justice, it will oftentimes point to the needs of the widow and of the orphan and, those, and the foreigner, those who are especially on the, on the fringes. That there's built into, we might say, there's built into Old and New Testament alike what some have called the sort of preferential option for the poor, as some liberation theologians have described it. Not because God loves the poor more, but because the poor very often are alienated or estranged from levers of power that others have because of their privileged position. And so the gospel is always especially attentive to those on the side. So we talked about Luke 4, for example. The kingdom of uh, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That the practices of justice, as we saw again in the Hebrew prophets, is consistently up front and central to what it means to be the people of God. This sort of basic equity, a sort of basic concern for those, again, especially who have not had the sorts of opportunities for equity or the opportunity for opportunity or the opportunities for privilege that others have had. So our assignment last week, I suggested to you to try this week, was um, to, to one, to maybe read some things that might allow you the opportunity to hear some things you haven't heard. And second was to um, consider the possibility of putting yourself in the awkward situation of speaking some sort of word about justice in a situation that it might cause some pushback or some anger or some frustration or you might find yourself just a bit alienated. Um, I have loved giving those kinds of assignments to my students. You know, I, I, um, I have call, I've had one class in particular where I give them what I call intentional conversations in which they have to build up their capacity to do this. Um, and so I do encourage you to kind of think about, even if you can just try just a little, just, you know, try it, experiment with it and see what happens. And then continue to build up your capacity for speaking into more difficult situations. I have found from my own experience that... Um, um, my mother used to, uh, used to say, when I told her that I wanted to go into ministry, um, 
she, she would say, that's great, but I'm concerned for you. <laughs> and she would say, because you're really sensitive. And it might be really hard. And I have found that it is, in fact, really hard. <laughs> uh, but I've also found that, um, and I'm going to come back to this in the other stuff we're going to talk about later today. I've also found that uh, developing a thicker skin is indeed an acquired possibility. And that you really can learn to um, not let meanness get to you if you are prone to let meanness get to you. It is possible to kind of begin to get to a place where you say, eh, that's not my stuff to have to worry about. That's not my stuff to have to deal with. That's more about them than it is about me, even though they're saying it's about me. Uh, so with that, our think pair share is, uh, if you did take some time this week to learn something you hadn't learned about some sort of situation of injustice, share that. Or if you took the opportunity to speak up about something, about some sort of matter of justice or equity or fairness, uh, share that with the partner. So the, the rule here is, if you're new to new our class, talk to somebody who's not your spouse. Take 30 minutes to share what you're going to say. Let them share what they're... 30 minutes. What did I say? 30 seconds. 30 seconds to share what you want to say and then hear from them for 30 seconds and then we'll share with the group as you would like. Okay? Everybody got somebody to talk to? Choose who you're going to talk to. And go.
Maybe one more time. No, we're good. Okay. Um, somebody share with us? <coughs> some you learned, uh, read about, or something, some way you spoke up. And even if you, uh, even if you spoke up in a situation, feel free not to give details that are unhelpful for you to give. But just tell us maybe something you learned about the experience about yourself or about people that you're around or work with or how people respond to stuff. I had a, I had a, this was a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't here last week, but it was a couple of weeks ago that happened. I had a moment, and it was sort of a family member, and they said something that I totally disagreed with, and it wasn't right. And I had, like, as they were saying it, I was having the internal conversation of, I should say something. No, I can't say anything. I should say something. No, I can't say anything. And then finally, I was just like, forget it. And then I said something. Like, I was like, I have to insert myself here and strongly disagree with their statement, knowing that it could cause a rift. And they're smarter than me and could probably art out argue me, but I have to say it anyway. Uh, and so it was just funny having like feeling that tension uh, of like knowing you should say something, but really not wanting to deal with the consequences. But uh, so yeah, it was it was awkward, but like it didn't end as badly as I thought it was going good. to. But uh, I didn't like change their mind or anything, but I at least gave them an al alternative point of view. Great, thanks. There does seem to be something to me about. Um, growing as human beings in which when we learn to, to develop the capacity to speak a differing viewpoint into a given setting and to do it without being having to be argumentative or defensive or even having to convince anybody but we just set it out there and say I see it this way um, that that actually fosters a deep liberty inside us as individuals when we can develop that sort of capacity so I love your description of that so thanks Jeremy Somebody else? Don't be shy. I learned something this week that, that triggered. Um, I'm learning from... Can y'all hear Laura? I'm learning from a management consultant that when I uh, insert myself or feel compelled to say something, that to do so as unemotionally as possible is far more effective and... Um, I mean, in my set, you know, in, at work it's more professional, but it can be so much more constructive because then the other person maybe doesn't feel like I'm judging them or that I'm angry at them and I don't feel so emotionally attached to winning them over to my perspective and I, my pride's not so attached to my perspective. <coughs> so great. I'm going to practice being, detaching myself emotionally when I disagree. Very helpful. Thank you. I saw a hand over here, I think, somewhere. I'm not, I He's the president of a real estate company that um, owns large amounts of property, rental properties for investors. And so it's all about the investor and their return on the money. And <coughs> they've started increasing rents in a predatory fashion. And so this week, um, my husband spoke into that and said raising them this percentage is predatory. And um, I thought that took a lot of courage, you know, um, because it is to them all about the dollar and not about people. So. Thank you. Fellow deaf ears, by the way. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that um, that's a challenging, um, challenging, challenging assignment for ourselves to do something like that. I appreciate 
You sharing, being willing to share. Thank you. Somebody else? I, I just want to follow that. Maybe not. Maybe not really on deck. Maybe it was on weak ears, but they, they don't touch hearts, maybe. Maybe, maybe. So we can't not do it because we don't think people are going to listen. Yes. You never know that ripple effect. That's a good word. Um, and I, I have I have found in my own experience that um, especially like if I can do it like Laura was describing and kind of voice my thoughts on something in a non-emotionally aggressive way, um, I've been surprised sometimes that years later people will come back and ask me. I mean, I just had this this semester a colleague ask me, "What do you think about such and so?" And I never expected he would ask me about that and invited feedback, critical feedback from me about it, um, which I never would have dreamed, you know, two or three years ago. Um, and so I think that's a very good word about that. Thank you. One more. I'll, I'll share this week that I was, I was on the receiving end of a conversation about where two people, uh, a staff member and a graduate student, uh, wanted to say some things to me about a matter of justice um, that um, I, I felt some anger when I realized what they wanted to talk about and it was and it, it pertained to somebody else um, but I, I felt some anger about it and some frustration about it and it was a great experience for me to sit and listen and not get defensive on behalf of this other person and it's it's hard to do that. I, I, for me, it's hard to do that. Um, but I, I nonetheless was able to learn some things I don't think I would have learned otherwise. If they hadn't trusted me enough to say, we, we're going to talk to you about something that's hard. And uh, I still, I, you know, I did not enjoy the conversation. And uh, felt still some frustration about the situation that I can't do anything about. Um, but being able to sit through and listen was, a, was, a, was important for me this week. Okay, let's move to um, next conversation for this week. I want to talk about a text out of James that I really dislike. And there have been times where I have found it so um, repugnant, I have mocked it. And that is this text out of uh, James 1. Anybody know what I'm going to say out of James 1 that you would find repugnant? There's quite a few you could find repugnant, I suppose, but anybody, any guesses? Consider pure joy when you face trials and temptations of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith works character. Um, I, I, in, in times of hardship, uh, especially if anyone has raised that with me, I, I want to take that and stick that up. You know, don't, don't say that to me when I'm suffering, right? And I think, if, as far as a pastoral concern, we should always be terribly sensitive about not quoting such verses to people who are in the midst of pain and suffering. It doesn't do any good. It just hurts. Um, and so I have found this text very frustrating. Who, who are you to say something like that to me, James? 
Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I that I have found, of course, is that um, there's something true about it. There's something true about it. So I'm going to come back around to that, and I want to I want to step back and, and talk about proverbs first. We've been talking about wisdom literature, right? Wisdom literature in Proverbs and the Psalms and the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. And how wisdom literature may be understood as observations about life, about the way life works. Life commonly works this way. So one of the ways you could read the book of Proverbs, for example, is if you do this good stuff, then good stuff will happen. Uh, So Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. And Psalm 1 says, um, Blessed are those who, um, who uh, I should have re- reread it this morning. Blessed are those who sit, do not sit at the seat of scoffers, at the seat of scoffers nor walk in the way of sinners, but delight in the way of the Lord. Right? They shall be like a tree planted by streams of living water, and in its time it shall flourish. So you hear all that? You do this good stuff, and in time... You're going to be like the tree planted by the waters and things are going to flourish and things are going to be good. The whole book of Proverbs in many ways is a long commentary upon that way of thinking about life. Right? Um, if you are a lazy sluggard who can't get the morsel of bread from the dish to your mouth, your roof is going to leak. <laughs> you know, that's what the Proverbs says. And the whole thing is a commentary on that. It's like, son, when that woman is coming after you and she is wily and she is perfumed and she says, come on in, my boy. Do not go in, my son, because you are going down unto the ways of death and it will destroy you. Right? So the whole commentary of Proverbs is if you do good stuff, then good stuff's going to happen. And if you do bad stuff... That's why it's bad, because bad stuff comes from it, right? It's not a, the wisdom literature is not legalistic in the sense of giving you a bunch of rules just to keep the rules. It's highly pragmatic and practical. Don't do X, because if you do X, then this crappy Y is going to happen. Do, do A, because if you do what's beautiful in A, then these beautiful good things are going to come of it. Now, um, so in other words, you might think, um, that it's this sort of stuff that can be tested by science and sociology, right? So, I, I'll try. How, what kind of proverb could we write for today? This is. I'm sorry. This is. This is. This is. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's tacky or not, but I, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> that I wrote this morning on my front porch. <laughs> he who hurries often in the drive-through tarries seldom beneath the trees, but sits long before the screen, shall die heavy and young. (laughs) I didn't realize it was that funny. I'm glad. So it's asking asking questions about the importance of habits and choices, that there are consequences that come from our choices. Um, So, you know, the the dangers of helicopter parenting this is, I mean, we got to hear it right here, right? Because if helicopter parenting, we're always swooping in to help the kid not have to deal with their consequences. What we're doing is simply delaying what has to happen for them to grow up as human beings. Right? It, it takes a long time sometimes to learn 
There are consequences that come from our choices, and it is terribly difficult to watch our kids learn that message. But if we, if we protect them from that basic bit of wisdom, we are doing them a grave disservice because we are hindering their maturation as human beings. Well, we learn that kind of stuff from the Proverbs. The problem with the book of Proverbs is that it's not always true. <coughs> now, for some of you, your notion of the authority of Scripture may, that may cause some rankles in you. But it's simply the case that the Proverbs are not always true. That's why there's another kind of wisdom literature in the Old Testament called what? The book of what? Job. If you read the book of Job carefully, you remember the three friends that come sit with Job? It's like they are quoting the book of Proverbs to Job. And Job says, sick of it. <laughs> Listen, like my reaction to, you know, book of, I want to take what your book of Proverbs does and tick it up here. You know, don't give me that. Because it's not true, he says. And at the end, when God finally shows up, Job gets all ticked off. I don't know what the New Testament, was it Peter who says, behold the patience of Job? I'm like, I don't know what Job you're reading, but <laughs> it, we could say he's talking about perseverance, in which case, yes. But he's highly impatient, and impatient with his friends, and highly impatient with God, because he says to God, come on, God, show up. Why don't you just step down here, and let's talk about this man to man. And you remember God shows up, and God says, it's a mystery, and it's a mystery so great, you cannot understand it, Job. But by the way, your three friends, they've not said what's right. Well, they were quoting the book of Proverbs. They've not said what's right. So it's this beautiful, one of the reasons I love the Bible is the Bible is an extended argument with itself. And that's one of the reasons, a very, very quick tangent, when we should realize that in the Christian tradition, arguments are not bad. Jews know this, right? Jewish rabbis know we have this long tradition of these arguments, and it's the fact of our arguments that makes us a viable community and a viable tradition. Same thing in the Christian tradition, is that if we'll realize that arguments are in fact ways of sustaining our community, if we learn to argue well, that are highly important. And we get this from the Bible. So, now let's switch to the New Testament. So the New Testament then, of course, has this notion that um, the, for the Apostle Paul, his great struggle, that he goes off into the wilderness for how many ever years it was, seven years or something. Is he, what is, you remember what he says, this is the verse he's trying to sort out? to deal with the fact that all of a sudden he has the Damascus Road experience, he realizes that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah, but he can't sort that out with his understanding of the Old Testament. And what's the verse he quotes, in Galatians, I think it's in Galatians, where he says, i got to go figure this one out. Anybody remember? It says, Cursed is anyone, that the law says, Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. It's like, you know, if this bad stuff happens to you, well, you're cursed. That's what the Old Testament says. And Paul says, well, look, man, what am I supposed to do with that? Because Jesus was hung upon a tree. He must have been cursed. And he has to go off for years and reconfigure his understanding of what it means to be a part of the Israel of God, the people of God. 
And, um, and so we are gifted the beautiful Pauline theology that we have in the New Testament. Which, relating to our discussion today, is we live between the times of the old aeon and the new aeon. And the new aeon of resurrection and of life, of justice and peace, of healing, of disease, it has broken in and overlaps with the old, but it has not yet come fully. It's here now, but not yet fully. And it shall come at some point in full when all the dead are raised and when Christ appears. But it's not here yet fully. And because we live in this time with the overlapping of the ages, the overlapping of the aeons, it will often be the case that the righteous in Christ shall suffer because of the overlapping of the aeons. Does that make sense? So for Paul, it's like you can't always assume if you do good, you get good, and you do bad, you get bad because of the overlapping of the aeons. Um, so there's a variety of ways then uh, another really quick, fascinating, to me fascinating thing that you might want to understand uh, if, if you've never heard this before. Uh, the Quran <coughs> rejects the notion that Jesus was crucified. Anybody have you ever heard that? How many of you ever heard that? For someone just kind of know. Isn't that fascinating? It rejects that Jesus was crucified. And um, one way to understand that is not because it the Quran rejects the importance of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Quran says that Jesus was a prophet of God, was an anointed one of God. As a matter of fact, many Muslims await the return of Christ as the end of the age. But any idea why they would reject the notion of a crucified Christ? Because if you love God and do what is good, you could not possibly be subjected to such injustice. So it's like the Quran rejects the crucified Christ precisely because it believes if you do good, you'll get good, and God will protect you. Isn't that fascinating? But the New Testament's struggling with that because it, in many ways, Islam, in, in that regard, is much like the Old Testament. And the New Testament says, well, wait, we have this crucified Christ. What are we supposed to do with that? Now let's move to the book of James. In, the, in James, James is not so much focusing upon suffering that occurs because we live in the overlapping of the aeons, it seems, but he's more working off classical wisdom traditions and saying that growth as a human being often simply comes through pain. It comes through hard work. That... Um, we simply grow in and through pain. And again, I remember at times in my life hearing people say that, and it made me so mad. But it's what James is saying, or what I read him to be saying. And it opens us up to lots of fascinating kinds of, kinds of possibilities about observations. Um, think for a second about uh, models of church. So there's a common, in the last 15, 20 years, there's been a common move in evangelical Christianity called seeker-sensitive services. You know what we mean by that? You heard this, heard of this language? How many of you ever heard this language? Okay. 
So the idea is that in your worship assemblies, what you want to do is be sensitive to people who are not Christians in your language and the way you approach things and all that kind of stuff to try to, try to draw them in. There may be a place for ha- paying attention to some of those concerns, seems to me. But at the same time, uh, one of the things I think it's important to realize is that from a Christian perspective, our, our, the, the, the gospel is not about meeting my felt needs. Because what Christianity, as well as many other philosophical traditions like the Greek philosophers, would say to that is, it's my felt needs that may be my problem. And what I need is not to have my felt needs met. What I need is to grow as a human being so that those felt needs are not as important to me as they used to be. Does that make sense? I mean, we know this with our kids, right? What's their felt need? To have more sugar. (laughs) What do you want? I want more chocolate. What do you want? I want more cake. What do you want? I want more cookies. And we know full well that we can be seeker-sensitive to our kids all day long, and it's going to make them sick. (laughs) They'll be really happy until they're sick. And so this sort of thing is saying, wait a second, to grow as a human being means not that things are always comfortable and easy for us, but that there's a hard part of pain in growing as a human being. Um, Yes. Do you think that one reason that verse is so hard, especially when Paul says, here's what the result is, is because perseverance is not really a desired trait that we right. have? Uh, certainly. It's hard, right? Because perseverance assumes I've been through some hard stuff. Right. We'd rather have it easy. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, one of the things that seems to be so, so true about that is, is even though while we can look at that and say we don't want to have to go through that, we also know, I think, generally from practical observation, is that if we look at a human life who's never been through something hard and have come out the other side, we can very often see certain marks of immaturity that we don't necessarily want to take on ourselves. Right? Um, and so again, it goes back to the kind of wisdom notion of this is the way oftentimes life works. And it's, and it's tough. Now, let me make this note about language here. Please note that both in James and also in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Remember in Romans chapter 8, he says, For God works good. Um, I'm sorry, this morning I didn't have my Bible on the front porch, so I didn't reread these texts. But what does he say in Romans 8? He says, um, All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. Yeah. Um, and he brings good out of all, all, all of this stuff. Now note that both in James and in that text, there's a distinction drawn between the good that comes out of it and the thing itself. And I would like to suggest that we should be very careful and note how important that distinction is. You know, I was walking down the stairwell and I saw a group of parents sitting in the stairwell at school um, Friday afternoon and something bad had happened to somebody and they were all around a single cell phone. And I heard one of the, one of the women say, well, let's trust that God is working in this. I don't know exactly what she meant by that, but what I've heard some people mean by that kind of language is that if something bad happens, then God's, God's, God's manipulating things back there to, to teach you something or work something out. But James and Romans assume, no, bad stuff happens, and even when God brings good out of it, it's still bad stuff. 
And again, for pastoral consideration, I would suggest to you that's a really helpful distinction to hold on to. Because we can deeply wound people when they've experienced really bad stuff. And we say, well, God's got something good planned. No, don't, no, don't hurt your brothers and sisters that way. Say, I'm sorry you're going through this awful stuff. And maybe just sit with them. Your Job's friends started out really good. They just sat there and they didn't say anything. It's when they started talking that they got in trouble. So maybe sometimes we just sit and we keep sitting and we keep sitting. And maybe at some point we'll have something to say. But maybe not. Maybe it's just sitting. Um, so remember that distinction. Here's two exercises I would suggest to you this week. Number one, um, look at for your own self, um, possibly, some grief or pain or struggle that you've experienced and ask yourself what is the good or what are some of the goods that have come to me out of this for which I can truly be grateful. Again, you're not saying this thing that happened was good. You're just saying this bad thing happened. And now what are some good things that have come to me out of that bad? And just write them down. And if you're able to say, I give thanks for these things, these good things that have come to me out of this grief. Here's a um, Um, some time back um, I had a friend who was going into rehab and I was afraid for his life and another friend called me who knew about what was going on and he said um, hey I called I heard about so and so and he knew we were close and he said you know I conducted the funeral service for my friend who went through this. And we talked, and when I hung up the phone, I was like cussing mad at him. And I thought, what the, what, what are you thinking saying that to me right now? But what I realized later was that it was precisely that I needed to hear at that moment. Because what he did was he gave me one of the places I had to grow in my personhood to say I can do all I can do for this one I love but I can't control it and he may die I can't fix it so it's it's asking ourselves a question how how can we look at hard things that happen and say what kind of growth as a human being has come to me because of that here's the second one I suggest to you uh, this, is a, this is actually a Buddhist practice um, that I learned from a, a Buddhist nun came, called, I think you pronounce her name, Pima Chodron, and in her book, um, When Things Fall Apart, which is a beautiful little book. Uh, she suggests this Buddhist practice called Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N, and it goes like this. 
uh, first, the background on it. She says that one of the things that happens to us as human beings is that when we are dealing with hard things, our, our obvious psychological makeup is, to, is an aversion to the pain, right? So here, something happens and we don't want to have to deal with it psychologically. It's like, uh, we just turn away from it internally or even externally. And she says that um, what Tonglin invites you to do is to uh, face the situation head on and let the pain hit you really hard. And just take it in and breathe. And it's a breathing exercise. So when you breathe, breathe it in and just let it hit you and wallop you. And then on your out breath, you have an intention, you set an intention for peace in the midst of that hardship. For acceptance in the midst of the hardship. For serenity in the midst of the hardship. So breathe in, let it hit you, breathe out, serenity, desire for serenity, desire for peace. Here's the second move that I find brilliant. Then the second move is after doing that for a moment, we, um, as we breathe in, we universalize our experience of the pain. And so then what I try to do is I try to bring to mind everyone else that I know of who is in a similar situation. And what I've done on occasion is I start taking myself a note on my phone in, in this given situation. And so in one of, one of the situations I've done this with, I've got a long list of people that I know and some of whom I don't know but I know by name who have, have been in similar situations. And I bring them to mind with all of their pain, which has been greater than my own. And I let it hit me. And it's grievous. And then as I breathe out, I desire for, in, for peace and serenity and acceptance for them and what they cannot change. And here's the trick for me. Um, one of the great temptations for me and difficulty is, is self-pity, to feel sorry for myself. What happens in Tonglin is that all of a sudden, my pain is converted into fuel for solidarity with others. And so my own pain makes compassion possible in a way that I could not exercise compassion otherwise because I universalize the suffering or I expand the circle of suffering and bring it to my awareness so that now it can become something that can genuinely change me to make me a more compassionate human being. So I, I love that kind of Buddhist notion of Tonglen. So journal, what good has come to you out of the suffering and two, the exercise of Tonglen. I'll try to get some notes out to you this week about that. But, uh, thank you very much. Let me say a blessing and a prayer for us. Oh, gracious God, we give thanks that you have come among us not as one who is far off from our troubles, but who has come among us as a man of sorrows, of one who has sought to seek first the goodness and the beauty and the justice and the compassion of the kingdom of God, and who has suffered in such pursuit of what it means to live most fully and most freely. We thank you, and we pray that you would have compassion upon us in our own suffering, and that you would grant us the grace that in our own suffering we may continue to look for graces that come to us in that suffering. And we pray that you would grant us grace so that our suffering may not lead us to self-pity, but may lead us to compassion. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.